Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am co-PI of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled The Contemplative Realism of Marilyn Robinson, I speak with Scott Morangello at DePaul University about Robinson's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Gilead. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am very pleased to have Scott Morangello join me on the podcast this morning. Scott is an assistant professor in the Catholic Studies Department at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. Prior to that, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Villanova. Scott received his PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame in 2009 and an MPhil in divinity from the University of Cambridge in 2003. He has recently finished a book on the patristic Christian theologian Irenaeus of Lyon, which will be forthcoming from Catholic University Press in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. And I'm super excited because you chose Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, which is an incredibly beautiful novel. It makes me cry every time I read it. And I had to read it twice to prepare for this podcast. So I've been crying a lot lately. But I just want to start by inviting you to tell our listeners a little bit about Marilyn Robinson, who she is, what draws you to her as a writer and to this novel in particular. So Marilyn Robinson is a professor at the University of Iowa at the Writers' Workshop there. She is maybe the, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, a lot of students who are uh, working in fiction go to the University of Iowa these days. Her first novel was this novel called Housekeeping, which was set in the Western U.S. And then in 2004, Gilead was published. So I came to the book. I was a graduate student at the University of Notre Dame. And I heard about this book where the main character talked a lot about theology. And he was in the Midwest. And I was reading theology. And I was in the Midwest. And so I said, oh, let me kind of pick this up. And not really knowing anything about Robinson, not knowing much about the book or about her beyond the review I had read. And it was one of those things that I think I read it in a day, maybe two. And like you, while I was reading it, I was crying a lot. (laughs) And it was in many, many ways very foreign to me, right? It's a little disarming in its simplicity. I think that's right. I think uh, (laughs) to, to talk in your language for a second, it's... It's simple in the way that like a Thomistic question is simple, which is to say like, oh, like I know exactly how this works. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. The more you think about it and the more you kind of get into it, the more you realize like this isn't simple at all. And I think that's exactly right. I think the word disarming is a helpful one there. So it's the story of this preacher who's in his 70s and he's writing these series of letters to his son who's uh, only about five or six he realizes that he won't kind of see his son growing up. Oh, and, and and he's a Protestant congregationalist preacher. I am not congregationalist. At the time I read the book, I did not have a son. Basically, the only thing Reverend Ames and I had in common was that we liked to eat fried egg sandwiches and listen to baseball on the radio. But that was about it. So Robinson's ability to draw people in to this world is part of the magic, I think, of the book. I mean, I have friends who are completely secular who love it. I have friends who are, you know, deeply Protestant who love it. I have friends of all kind of faith traditions. Yeah, I have to say that it is miraculous because I felt the same way reading it for the first time and then rereading it just recently. It's like, I literally have nothing in common with John Ames. And yet, despite the fact that I can in no way relate to the main character, I'm so powerfully drawn into him and his world and his simplicity and his decency and his honor. Mm -hmm. And just to start, we should talk about, you know, who... Who is John Ames? Who are the main people in the novel? I mean, as you mentioned, this isn't like a plot-driven novel, really. It's it's letters to a son. 
the novel, as you said, is a series of letters that John Ames, who is a Congregationalist pastor in his 70s or so, writes to his young son. And John has a, or Rever- I like to call him Reverend Ames because it kind of gives him a gravitas. Uh, Reverend Ames had been married earlier in his life. His wife passed away in childbirth. So he had a daughter who was just a few days old when she passed away. And as I said, the mother passed away in complications in childbirth. So he was very much by himself for probably about 30 years or so, 40 years of his life. And he meets this woman named Lila, who just kind of comes to him one day. She comes into the town of Gilead, Iowa, right? So this is where the town is set. And it's interesting and I think important that Gilead is a biblical word in the book of Genesis, chapter 31, verse 25. We hear of Gilead and Gilead is Hebrew for a heap of stones of testimony, right? And I think this idea of testimony is really important for the novel. So anyway, Ames marries this woman, Lila. He kind of instructs her in the Christian faith. She becomes Christian. He baptizes her. And then at one point we hear, she says to him, you know, you should marry me. And he agrees. At the time they get married, you know, he's in his late 60s, let's say, and she's probably about 30 or so. Right. He's twice her age. Yeah. Which might sound a little bit scandalous to us today, or who knows, maybe not, but certainly was not sort of scandalous. It seems as though everybody in the town kind of was very happy that he had someone to take care of and someone to take care of him. And it's clear their relationship is a loving one. And, you know, there's no weird power dynamics or anything like that. The two of them have a son and he names him after Robert Boughton, who is his best friend. Robert is a, Reverend Boughton is a Presbyterian preacher in the same town of Gilead. And Reverend Ames decides to write letters to his young son, Robbie, knowing full well that his son won't know him when he's older. It's not like he's on his deathbed, but he's an old man and he realizes that he's not going to be around forever. And so he wants to write letters to his son as a form kind of of testimony of, you know, looking back, explaining to his son who he is. And that's the novel. It's Oh, about 245 pages or so, 247 pages of letters from a man to his son. We don't have any other narrative voice in the novel. Everything we know, we know through Reverend Ames's letters. You know, it's not even something like these are Reverend Ames's letters. It just starts with, I think the first line is great. I told you last night that I might be gone sometime. And you said, where? And I said, to be with the good Lord. And you said, why? And I said, because I'm old. And you said, I don't think you're old. And you put your hand in my hand and you said, you aren't very old, as if that settled it. Right? So that's how the novel starts. It's not even, it doesn't even begin with something like, you know, these are the letters that I wrote to my son or something like that. You just have to realize after a few pages, like, oh, wait a second, these are a bunch of letters. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think I love so much about this book is that it really brings home the intimacy of letter writing because there are times when it almost reads like a diary. Like you forget that these are letters that inside. And I, and I think that John Ames himself forgets in a sense what he's doing. You know, I mean, he clearly doesn't have like a plan. It's, it's really just him pouring his thoughts and his heart out on the page so that his son will feel that he knows him. And it's not just that he talks about the past and what's happened, and then he talks about a future that he won't participate in, his hopes and his dreams for his son, but he also talks about himself so much. I mean, it's at parts practical, it's at parts contemplative, it's at parts deeply reflective, and at parts it's even meta with respect to him as a writer. You know, so I mean, John Ames, he's a, he's a preacher, he's a reverend, but he's a writer. So one of the things that he talks about is the fact that he's written just as much as Augustine. He has all of these boxes in the attic and he wonders about their value. You know, he wonders about this activity he's been doing his whole life, really writing. And I think it's through writing and the intimacy of writing 
that he wants to reveal something about himself to his son, but maybe also reveal things about the world, about reality. It's amazing that it works so well. You know, it's a testament to Marilyn Robinson as a writer, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. Because again, it's a kind of, in in some ways, it's like pretty boring. I remember Paul Ely actually saying this, and I think Marilyn, I heard Marilyn Robinson say it once too. In 2001 or 1999 or something, explain to somebody, part of like the New mm-hmm. York uh, literati, that actually, you know, the best book that you're going to read in five years is going to be about a preacher in Iowa writing letters to his son. Oh, and it's set in the 1950s. Right. Oh, and it's all very <laughs> traditional. Like, what? It's, as you say, it's kind of miraculous in that way. The forms of love we're used to talking about, of course, romantic love, we're used to talking about, well, you know, it's certainly in a Christian space, but even in kind of Jewish and Islamic spaces, and we're used to talking about kind of divine love, as you as you point out, of course, sacred love. And even when it comes to kind of parental love, the love of a dad for a son, I mean, I don't think uh, this is going to sound hyperbolic, and I don't mean it to be, but I think there's something there. The, the love that John Ames has for his son, and also for his godson, uh, Jack Bowden, and we'll talk more about him, really, in my view, rivals the love that Priam has for Hector in the Iliad. That kind of just complete and total devotion to and looking for the good of another in a way that's kind of emotionally rich. And and in some ways, I think the book is really a meditation on the fourth commandment, you know, honor thy father and mother, which of course, and, and Ames talks about this, is really the bridge between the first three commandments about love of God and the, let's say, five through 10, love of neighbor, and then honor thy father and mother is kind of the hinge on which those two things balance. And I think for all of us, quote unquote religious or quote unquote secular, those aren't words that I tend to like, but thinking about love of parents and our parents' love for us, and or maybe our parents not love for us or what we see as our parents not loving us or whatever. I mean, however that plays out in one's own life. And then either having children or losing children or imagining having children or whatever. These are in deep, deep ways, I think, universal questions. Needless to say, like not everybody has kids, not everybody wants kids, but certainly, you know, we don't choose to be born. And so thinking about how the relationship that we have with our parents and whether our parents love us and how they love us and how they show that love. And and I think there's something specific, of course, to paternal love, uh, which is different from maternal love. And I think the book hits on that and addresses it in a way that's really unparalleled. Well, why do you think she wants to highlight paternal love? I think that's a really good question. And I think it's a really good question in part because it doesn't have an answer, which is to say, supposedly, and I think authorial intention isn't the most important thing, but supposedly she just kind of woke up one day and heard a voice. And the voice she heard was John Ames's voice. And she just had to kind of write that down. Yeah. And I think as a conceit, it enables writing about a father's love for his son and a father's love for his godson allows any number of kind of just fundamental human questions to arise, ones that have kind of particular salience in a Christian tradition, but also has kind of deep resonances for non-Christians as well. Well, I sort of thought that maybe you might say that the reason for focusing on paternal love, love of the father, would that it would have some sort of Christian theological weight behind it. Well, I th- I don't think that Robinson set out to write a Christian book, but I think if you hear the voice of a Congregationalist pastor and a Congregationalist pastor who takes Scripture seriously and takes Augustine seriously and takes Calvin seriously and takes Karl Barth seriously, then that person has to understand paternal love in light of the Christian story. Absolutely. Right, but you might have just been describing Marilyn Robinson herself. I mean, Marilyn Robinson is a Calvinist. She takes the Calvinist strand of of Protestant theology incredibly seriously. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there are aspects of this novel that seem fundamentally Christian, like all of the meditations on grace. Oh, I agree, I agree with that 100%. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't say that Robinson like set out to write a Christian novel and then all these wonderful things came out. I think instead she started with this character and then taking the character seriously meant taking all of the ideas that formed him seriously. And those ideas are fundamentally ideas about certain strands in Protestant Christianity, without, without doubt, absolutely. Well, you know, I'll just say, for me reading the novel, and I'm curious what you think about this, you know, I think, yes, it's, it's absolutely a novel about love, in particular, the love that John Ames himself experiences for his son, for God even love of creation, love of, of his wife, and love of his friends, especially his friend, Jack Bowton. I think it's a book about contemplation. <laughs> I mean, one of the... Absolutely. Yeah, because one of the things that's so striking about the book is how much time that John Ames spends just contemplating. And he talks about the importance of visions and of paying attention and of noticing things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, how she's dealing with these themes of, of love and grace and contemplation. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that really gets to the heart of the book because, and truthfully, this isn't something I really thought about before I read the book or certainly thought about before I started teaching the book. We tend to think, again, of love in terms of like rapture, even like, you know, diatima, like we get kind of wrapped up in all of this stuff. Or we tend to think of love in terms of service, right? So like a mother's love for her child or a soldier's love for his country or something mm -hmm. like that. I think one of the amazing things about the novel is the connection between love right. and attention. Simone Weil has this amazing essay called Diligence in School Studies. I'm forgetting the exact title of it. But basically, she says that one of the ways you can love God is by paying attention in school and working hard at school and being focused, like really, really focused. And in a completely different vein in uh, his posthumous novel, The Pale King, David Foster Wallace talks about how in, in today's world, if you can pay attention, you have something that no one else has really, because right. uh, we really live in a world, and, and this is just... But for Ames, like, if you love something, That's you're going to pay attention to it. And conversely, what you pay attention to, you love. And that's, in some ways, really scary, I think, for us, because do I really love my Twitter feed that much? Do I really love all of the kind of ephemera that keep me going that much? And the judgment on me as I read the book is ah, maybe I do. I need to pay better attention. I need to be more like John Ames. And so I think there's a real way in which Ames is a moral exemplar for all of us. And on the most fundamental level, he's a moral exemplar, not because he's a pastor, not because he's a good dad, not because he's a good husband, not because he worries about forgiveness. But he can do all of those things because he sees the connection between love and attention. That's right. That's right. Uh, so like if we look on like page 41... So uh, two, two passages, one on 41 and one on uh, 53. So 41, he has all these sermons that he's written out, and he writes them out by hand, and then he keeps them in the attic. And I'm not a preacher, but I, I can only imagine it being incredibly difficult week in and week out to just keep writing about new biblical passages and connecting all the readings and all these things. But So the top of page 41, he writes, and this is the end of one letter. The, the letters aren't really broken up, except for kind of double spacing. So this seems to be the end of one of them, Ames writes. I suppose it's natural to think about those old boxes of sermons upstairs. They are a record of my life, after all, a sort of foretaste of the Last Judgment, really. So how can I not be curious? Here, I was a pastor of souls, hundreds and hundreds of them over the years. And I hope I was speaking to them, not only to myself, as it seems to me sometimes when I look back. I still wake up at night thinking, that's what I should have said, or that's what he meant, remembering conversations I had with people years ago, some of them long gone from the world, past any thought of my putting things right with them. And then I do wonder where my attention was, if that is even the question. Right? It's like, wow. Right. I suppose we all kind of do this in some way, shape, or form, kind of imagine like, oh, you know, if I had just done, I, I could have had a better interaction with that person, or, oh, I really messed that up or something. But rarely 
at least in my own case, do I think of that specifically in terms of I wasn't paying close enough attention? And Ames clearly does think that way. And so, again, it's it's something that shaped my own thinking on this, to this connection, as I said, between love and attention. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that one of the things that feels very nostalgic to me about the novel is, and I think this is like one of the things that really makes me sad, <laughs> is I always feel like there couldn't be a John Ames now really, for so many reasons. One, we've sort of lost all sense of decency and propriety and the mores that he so thoroughly embodies. So there's that loss, but so much deeper than that is the loss of silence and solitude and just time to notice things, right? Because as you said, like he doesn't even have a TV. When he listens to the radio, it's like a nine-inning baseball game, which is like, of of all sports, like baseball is the most contemplative. And he lives in this very small town in the Midwest where basically nothing's going on. And it's like he has this freedom to notice things. And he also has the ability to feel this kind of deep wonder and appreciation and love of creation, of existence itself. So like there are all of these beautiful moments in the novel. I mean, they just come up randomly without warning where he just in a, in a very ordinary moment he sees the beauty of all things. Yeah, so I have a couple passages that remind me exactly of that that, are, that might be worth reading. So like on page 52, he writes, I'd never have believed I'd see a wife of mine doting on a child of mine. It amazes me every time I think of it. I'm writing this in part to tell you that if you ever wonder what you've done in your life, and everyone does wonder sooner or later, you have been God's grace to me, a miracle, something more than a miracle. You may not remember me very well at all, and it may seem to you to be no great thing to have been the good child of an old man in a shabby little town you will no doubt leave behind. If only I had the words to tell you. Like, I am actually tearing up now. Um, (laughs) Don't cry, Scott. (laughs) And then, you know, or or just to follow up on that, right? Like, just after. And he's wonderfully kind of of matter-of-fact in a way that I really admire. So at the very bottom of page 52, I suppose you're not prettier than most children. You're a nice-looking boy, a bit slight, well-scrubbed, and well-mannered. All that is fine, but it's your existence I love you for, mainly. Existence seems to me now the most remarkable thing that could ever be imagined. I'm about to put on imperishability in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. So he's quoting, he's, he's alluding to 1 Corinthians 15 there, where Paul talks about the resurrection, and that's going to be, we're going to put on imperishability and it'll be like the sound of a trumpet or the twinkle of an eye. So back to Ames. The twinkling of an eye, that is the most wonderful expression. I've thought from time to time it was the best thing in life, that little incandescence you see in people when the charm of a thing strikes them or the humor of it. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. There is quoting scripture. That's a fact. When you read this, I am imperishable, somehow more alive than I ever have been in the strength of my youth with my dear ones beside me. You read the dreams of an anxious, fuddled old man, and I live in the light better than any dream of mine. Not waiting for you, though, because I want your dear perishable self to live long and to love this poor perishable world, which I somehow cannot imagine not missing bitterly, even while I do long to see what it will mean to have a wife and child restored to me. I mean Louisa and Rebecca. I have wondered about that for many years. Well, this old seed is about to drop into the ground then I'll know. Louisa is his, his, his first wife, and Rebecca is the baby who, who died. But maybe we disagree on this. I don't know. If there are John Ameses out there somewhere in the United States of America or somewhere in the world in 2018, I'm willing to bet there are. But the fact that we don't hear about them is actually part of the point. Because I think there are a lot of people out there who really do marvel at the I mean, I marvel at the existence of my kids. I mean, I don't put it so beautifully, but um, and certainly this book has helped me marvel at their existence. You know, and I, I don't think we necessarily have to think about people who are like completely off the grid or you know have rejected modern life or something like that. But let me put it this way: I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful 
that there are people who at least strive to pay attention in the way that John Ames pays attention. I think, uh, to, to use a Christian idiom, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that there's a cloud of witnesses, but it's a cloud we can't always see. Well, let me ask you, because I think they're related. Mm-hmm. John Ames is a, for lack of a better word, he's a lover of creation, but he has a very mm-hmm. sacramental understanding Absolutely. of creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if you could say what he's thinking about creation, the sacraments, and in particular, what would his, what's he thinking about grace? I mean, grace is a constant theme in these letters, and he clearly thinks that the world is suffused with divine grace. But what really does that mean for him, and and what does it mean for us? Yeah, I I think one of the real questions that any theist has to deal with, and I think, well, let's count Platonists as theists in this way too. Um, It's like, okay, you're talking about this divine world, you're talking about this creator who is somehow beyond all creation and yet suffused with it or whatever. It's like, well, well, how do we know, right? Like, how do you, how do you have any access to that at all? And, and if you do have access to it, and I, again, I think this is a legitimate question. If you do have access to it, does that somehow go against divine transcendence? Does God sort of become less godlike if all of a sudden God becomes you know, one of us, let's say, or somehow shows him, shows himself or whatever. And so I think that's a real question, right? Um, I, I certainly don't think it's an insurmountable question, but I think that it's one that folks who believe in a creator or folks who believe in the forms or something like that, you know, have to think about a little bit. And I think for Ames, a Calvinist, right? He's coming from that tradition, which tends not to, at least in the popular imagination, have quite the sacramental tradition that certainly the Catholic tradition or the the West or the Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox tradition in the East, let alone, you know, Syriac traditions, yada, yada, have. But he does seem to have this kind of sacramental sense. And so he talks at one point on page 70, for example, about his giving the Eucharist to his son, bottom of page 69. He says, today was the Lord's Supper, and I preached on Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and when he had blessed, he break it and gave it to them and said, take ye, this is my body, end quote. Normally, I would not preach on the words of institution themselves when the sacrament is the most beautiful illumination of them there could be. So I just want to remember that sentence. And skip down a few lines, he writes. In any case, you may remember this. When almost everyone had left and the elements were still on the table and the candles still burning, your mother brought you up the aisle to me and said, you ought to give him some of that. You're too young, of course, but she was completely right. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. Your solemn and beautiful child face lifted up to receive these mysteries at my hands. They are the most wonderful mystery, body and blood. It was an experience I might have missed. Now I only fear I will not have time enough to fully enjoy the thought of it. And so I think the, this, the question of sacramentality and the question of how kind of grace breaks through is in a deep sense, and I think that he gets at it in that sentence I kind of highlighted, you can only appreciate beauty, right? The, the words of institution themselves when the sacrament is the most beautiful illumination of them there could be, right? You only recognize that grace and you only participate in it on the Christian account if you're really paying right. attention. And one of the one of the things I also important to talk about is his relationship with his godson Jack Bowden. And I think a big part of the story isn't just this kind of nice letters to his son because they clearly have this kind of beautiful relationship, but the beauty in the relationship with his godson which also has to do with kind of grace as it were breaking through and paying attention in a certain way. That's right. So we'll we'll get to him. I mean, his godson is also his namesake. I want to get to him in a second, but I just wanted to mention, um, just in keeping with this theme of the way that John Ames pays attention to reality is sacramentally infused. Do you remember the scene where the church has been struck by lightning and there's a fire and he goes to help his father clean up and his father gives him this ashy biscuit. 
So he talks about taking this ashy biscuit from his father's charred hand. Now, this moment for him is so crucial and it keeps coming up throughout his letters. And the reason it is, is because again, it's this, it's this communion or this breaking of the bread, which has this deeply sacramental, grace-filled aspect you know, for John Ames. And there are also all of these moments when he's contemplating water just as a natural element. And he says, you know, the fundamental sense of water is for blessing. That's somehow part of its essence or its nature because like, like it's no accident that we use water to bless because of water's purity and like its character as water. And so, you know, it's like reality in the sacraments. They don't, they're one and the same for him. And I, and I think that's, I think that's really interesting and just, just worth highlighting. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I just, a couple things on that. So Ames is the son and the grandson of pastors and his grandfather had been connected with John Brown and the Kansas and Nebraska Act and obviously before his time, an abolitionist, right? And saw the kind of horrors of slavery and frankly thought that the horror of slavery needed to be defeated violently, right? Ames's father was a pacifist during the First World War at a time when pacifism in the United States was a minority position to say the least. And at a time when it was seen as Christian's patriotic duty to support the American military in the First World War, which of course they didn't think of as the First World War. And so the episode you're pointing to, Ames's father takes him to go find his grandfather's grave. And they're quite literally kind of walking around Kansas, not really knowing where they are. But And so, uh, so much of the book is not just uh, John Ames talking to his son, Robbie, but also talking to him in a way that passes along messages that he himself received. So in one of my favorite passages in the book, and this also gets to the question of grace and how um, seeing everything is infused by God, uh, the top of page 124, Ames writes, this is an important thing, which I have told many people and which my father told me and which his father told him. When you encounter another person, when you have dealings with anyone at all, it is as if a question is being put to you. So you must ask, you must think, what is the Lord asking of me in this moment, in this situation? If you confront insult or antagonism, your first impulse will be to respond in kind. But if you think, as it were, this is an emissary sent from the Lord, and some benefit is intended for me, first of all, the occasion to demonstrate my faithfulness, the chance to show that I do in some small degree participate in the grace that saved me, you are free to act otherwise than, circum than as circumstances would seem to dictate. You are free to act by your own lights. You are freed at the same time of the impulse to hate or resent that person. He would probably laugh at the thought that the Lord sent him to you for your benefit and his. But that is the perfection of the disguise, his own ignorance of it. Wow. To encounter the world that way... That is just fundamentally, in my view, the Christian way to encounter the world. Would that Christians, and I count myself here in their number, did. Like when someone bothers me, my first instinct is to like get angry. But what if my first instinct were to say like, ah, this is an emissary sent from the Lord for some benefit for me. So I just want to kind of switch gears for a second because we've been talking a lot about his love for his son and his relationship with his father and his grandfather and, and all of that is super fascinating. But I think one of the really tough edges of the book is his relationship with his godson. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So let me take a couple steps back in talking about that and say that so I don't know quite the intention, what Robinson had planned, but Gilead has ended up to be the first of what's now a trilogy and supposedly will be there will be a fourth book about these characters in Gilead, Iowa, right? And so, as I said, John Ames's best friend is Robert Boughton, and Boughton is a Presbyterian preacher, and he has a bunch of children, I think seven, and one of them has come home to live with him. And that's one of his daughters, 
Her name is Glory. And Glory is kind of, her, her father's old and she's taking care of. And there was one of the children, Jack, uh, who was named after John Ames. Uh, John Ames baptized all the children. Jack Bowton was the kind of ne'er-do-well of the family, the black sheep of the family. And for those of us who either come from or are familiar with big families, it's not unusual for there to be a kind of black sheep of the family who also, it seems, is always the one who's most loved by the mom and dad, fairly or unfairly. And so Jack comes back. So Robert Bowton is home. His wife has passed away. His daughter, Glory, is home with him, taking care of him. And Jack comes back kind of out of nowhere. And as you noted, Jack is named after John Ames. So the man's name is John Ames Bowton. He goes by Jack. But we learn that Jack had kind of a crazy life. And he had a child with a a poor woman, uh, kind of from a couple towns over. And he abandoned the the child and the woman. Like, they they didn't get married. And because the woman was quote unquote, from the wrong side of town. Her parents weren't very helpful with the baby, poor family, kind of difficult situation. And essentially, out of a result of neglect, Jack's child died, right? And, you know, the the Boughton family and John Ames himself did everything they could to try to take care of the kid and reach out to the the wife, to, to the young woman and her family, etc. And nothing nothing came of it. They they wouldn't accept their help and the poor little one died. And so for John Ames, whose wife and child were taken from him through, you know, death and and uh, death and childbirth, uh, nothing anyone could do to see his own godson abandon a child and have that child die and kind of not, Reverend Ames's view, not take care of the child, not pay attention, not love the child that God had given him is almost, and I think that almost is important, an unforgivable sin. And so so Jack comes back, right? And the question that, and he, he wants to have some relationship with his godfather. He, he realizes what he's done is wrong, but he just doesn't know how to do it. And, and so a big part of the novel, a big part of these letters is Reverend Ames explained to his son kind of how this happens and his relationship. Uh, and it's not quite clear if, you know, he's meant, he wants little Robbie to like get a lesson from this or whatever, but it's clear that he wants to reconcile with Jack, but he doesn't quite know how. Yeah, nobody seems to know quite how to deal with Jack. Right. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of a racial aspect to what's going on as well. That's right. So we're in like 1950s Iowa. And Iowa is an amazing state in all sorts of ways. But one of the ways it's an amazing state is that it never had anti-miscegenation laws. So it was never illegal for white folks and black folks to get married. Uh, as it was in other states, you know, most famously the Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia. So Jack, it turns out, has a son, and his he has a son with an African American woman, and her. I mean, this is this is a little funny. In fact, her father is a preacher, right? And so he's come back home, right? But he's come back home, and he's left his son. And his sort of wife, I mean, they're, they, they haven't had like an official wedding ceremony, but he sees himself as connected to her. And poor Reverend Ames just doesn't know what to do with this. And so this is another kind of aspect of perhaps the central aspect of the novel. How does Reverend Ames forgive Jack? And so a, a passage I think is kind of central to that. This is page 164. And I think this is the saddest paragraph in the novel. This came to my mind because remembering and forgiving can be contrary things. No doubt they usually are. It is not for me to forgive Jack Bowden. Any harm to me he did personally was indirect and really very minor. Or say at least, that harm to me was probably never a primary object in any of the things he got up to. That one man should lose his child and the next man should just squander his fatherhood as if it were nothing. Well... That does not mean the second man has transgressed against the first. I don't forgive him. I wouldn't know where to begin. And so kind of at the heart of the Christian message is God's love for humanity. And that love leads to forgiveness, kind of God's forgiveness of human beings and human beings' forgiveness of each other through and with God. For a preacher to say that he 
doesn't forgive someone, we're almost, if not actually, in the realm of despair there. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's so endearing to me about this character of John Ames as he presents himself to us in these letters is his honesty about himself. Um, He's kind of searching himself, trying to present the truth about himself to his son. I mean, I think he has a very genuine desire for his son to like know him in a deep way. And he is forthcoming about his faults. And I think the fact that he's willing to say that he can't forgive him is really quite dramatic, I think, for him to do that because he oh, yeah. does know that it's a falling short of what Christ commands um, a Christian such as himself to do. And I think it relates to another moment of deep honesty. And that makes me feel like an incredible compassion for this character when he talks about covetousness and original sin and and you know i really think he's talking about envy and i think you know john ames is a man who lost a child that he deeply wanted and he felt that loss his entire life and so to have his godson have a child not want it neglect it abandon it and allow it to die he just can't do it You know, and I think part of it is that, I don't know if envy is exactly the right word, but, you know, here he has, without deserving it, you know, what he himself so desperately wanted and lost. And I think that is part of his inability to let go. Yeah, and I think kind of the the turning point of the novel is that this this forgiveness is, is possible. And that's something that Ames, he has to forgive in order to understand that himself. Right. Yeah, I think that's good. So I have definitely read some criticisms of the novel that it's that it's nostalgic, that it's, I don't know, kind of a nostalgic representation of, of, you know, a 1950s America that we've lost. And I just wondered if you could, if you could kind of address that criticism and, and what you make of it. Sure. I tend to think of nostalgia as thinking about the past in order to make yourself feel better, right? So that like in the past, we had it right, and we just have to make that, make the world like that again. And there's a kind of comfort in it, and it glosses over any number of problems we had in the past. And and sometimes, you know, that's a good thing. Like we want to have like good memories and, and they help help us see our lives in a certain way. But I don't think that this novel is nostalgic because I don't think nostalgia is honest. Right? I think that ultimately nostalgia is kind of picking and choosing what you see as important and forgetting about what is inconvenient in that story. So we might have a nostalgia for the 1950s, but you know, when we think of the way racial minorities in the United States were treated, well, maybe we shouldn't be that nostalgic about it. Or if we think about US military spending or something like whatever, we can have fond memories, let's say, of our parents' childhoods in the 50s and say that like our grandparents did a good job raising them or something like that. Like that's I think that's a, a wonderful thing. I, I think nostalgia is, as it were, the kind of enemy of truth. And so I think, and as you've pointed out really well, I, I think this is a really honest novel that Ames is really honest with himself and he's honest with Jack and he's honest in his letters to little Robbie and etc. So I don't think it's it's nostalgic. And one of my favorite passages is about courage, and I, I'd like to read that because you don't need courage in nostalgia, right? Like <laughs> the you, you need courage when uh, things are hard and when you're not sure you can pull it off, right? So, and you need courage when you have the vision, when you have the goal in mind, but you're not sure you can actually act on that. So on page 246, you know, I might just read the rest of the book from 246 on because, you know, it's that good. Theologians talk about a provenient grace that precedes grace itself and allows us to accept it. I think there must also be a provenient courage that allows us to be brave. That is to acknowledge that there is more beauty than our eyes can bear 
that precious things have been put into our hands and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. And therefore, this courage allows us, as the old men said, to make ourselves useful. It allows us to be generous, which is another way of saying exactly the same thing. But that is the pulpit speaking. What have I to leave you but the ruins of old courage and the lore of old gallantry and hope? Well, as I have said, it is all an ember now, and the good Lord will surely breathe, in, breathe it into flame again. If, if that were a nostalgic passage, it would talk about how great the fire was way back when and how we've doused it, right? Instead, it's there's just this little ember, an ember that you refer to in that passage where, you know, it's like this burnt biscuit, right? Which almost certainly has an, a resonance with when the seraphim, the seraph puts a little coal on the prophet Isaiah's lips and tells him, gives him his charge. And so our hope, and, and again, this maybe you and I would differ here on this, like, you know, I'm hopeful that there are people out there today, like John Ames, that there are embers burning. And and, and, and to get personal on this, I, I, I really do see it as my job in terms of a te- as a teacher, let alone as a parent, but just as a teacher. Our students have embers, and they, they are concerned about lots of things that are worth being concerned about. And it's my job to make sure those embers just keep burning, that they're not doused. I don't think that I'll be the one that breathes flame into them, right? But my hope is, and this is why I get up in the morning, that I can at least keep those embers burning long enough that somebody else can. And I think that for Ames, that's what these letters are about. They're about teaching his son about how he sees God's love, teaching his son how he understands the fourth commandment, uh, teaching his son how love and vision and grace and forgiveness are ultimately the same thing, or or, or just facets of the same jewel or something like that. I agree with almost everything that you've said there, just, (laughs) just so you know. I will say that I think there's an obvious didactic element to these letters, but their overwhelming quality is a kind of searching there's this like searching for the truth and an attempt to communicate it you know as best as he can the truth about himself the truth about absolutely the world as he's come to understand it the truth about the faith i mean i think it's like and it's really just about intimate love like he wants to share himself with his son in the deepest way, but the only way he can do that now is by writing basically to his future self. No, I think that the didactic aspect and the searching aspect are, you know, two sides of the same coin, right? So that in order to teach, you have to show how you yourself, in order to teach the truth, you need to show how you yourself search for the truth. You know, that's like a good lesson, you know, back from Plato's dialogues and stuff. And so teaching, yeah, the teaching the truth and searching for the truth, this kind of, you know, as you said, the didactic aspect and the kind of searching aspect, I think are two sides of the same coin. And I think, you know, we see that back, you know, in Plato's letters, you know, it's it's Socrates is both searching for the truth and, and teaching the truth at one at the same time. Yeah, well, I also wanted to say there's also this connection between writing and praying as forms of intimacy. And this is actually like, right, he says this right at the beginning, but it's just, I think it's one of the most striking passages in the novel. And so I'll just go ahead and read it because it's one of my favorites. Again, this is John Ames writing to his son. For me, writing has always felt like praying, even when I wasn't writing prayers, as I was often enough. You feel that you are with someone. I feel I'm with you now, whatever that can mean considering that you're only a little fellow now, and when you're a man, you might find these letters of no interest, or they might never reach you for any number of reasons. Well, but how deeply I regret any sadness you have suffered, and how grateful I am, and any anticipation of any good you have enjoyed. That is to say, I pray for you, and there's intimacy in it. That's the truth. And so, I find that passage so moving, one, because I think it's true. You know, when you write a, a letter to someone or when you write someone and you're trying to communicate your, yourself to them, 
Um, it's incredibly intimate. It's the same kind of intimacy in prayer. And so there we have, I think, one of the most striking passages where the love of the Father for the Son is like the love of God for his children, where communion that you have with God in prayer is like the communion he's trying to have with his son. There's intimacy in it. Yeah, and and at the end, like the and just to pick up on exactly that point on the question of intimacy, I'll just read a little bit. But so this is the the last two pages of the novel. I love the prairie. So often have I seen the dawn come and the light flood over the land and everything turn radiant at once. That word good so profoundly affirmed in my soul that I'm amazed that I should be allowed to witness such a thing. There may have been a more wonderful first moment when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, but for all I know to the contrary, they still do sing and shout, and they certainly might well. Here on the prairie, there is nothing to distract attention from the evening and the morning, nothing on the horizon to abbreviate or to delay. Mountains would seem an impertinence from that point of view. To me, it seems rather Christ-like to be unadorned as this place is, as little regarded. I can't help imagining that you will leave sooner or later, and it's fine if you if you have done that or you mean to do it. The whole downtown does look like whatever hope becomes after it begins to weary a little, then weary a little more. But hope deferred is still hope. I love this town. I think sometimes of going into the ground here as the last wild gesture of love, I too will smolder away the time until the great and general incandescence. I'll pray that you grow up a brave man in a brave country. I will pray you find a way to be useful. I'll pray and then I'll sleep. Well, I think we should leave it there. I think so too. Thank you so much, Scott, for talking with me about Marilyn Robinson. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 